Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. You know what, uh, ladies and gentlemen? Let's bring out the director's chairs, as only fitting our next guest, who in his career has directed some of the great Monty Python movies, including Life of Brian. He's one of the performers and writers. He started out his writing and humor career with Michael Palin. He's written children's books. His newest book is called Lady Cottington's Pressed Fairy Book. His other books include The Curse of the Vampire Socks and other doggerel. Will you please welcome Mr. Terry Jones. Thanks for, uh, for being here. So, uh, of course, Monty Python was, uh, was what? How many of you have not seen Monty Python? <laughs> <laughs> you raise your hand, Terry, why? Well, I try to avoid it, you know, it's bad for the hell. Sort of a, sort of a, you see all the things going wrong. You remember when you were shooting these things, you, what you had in your mind, and it's never quite as good as you wanted it to be, except one or two things. Spoken like a true artist. Oh, well, well, there's one or two things that look better, actually. The, the Mr. Creosote scene of the, the, the fat man in the restaurant throwing up, that, was, that, that looked better than I imagined it possibly could, actually. What were, what were childhoods like around the dinner table at your house? <laughs> they, were, they were fine. Although, actually, I have to say, I remember my first joke was, I must have been about three or something, and I, we were up in Colwyn Bay, and my grandmother um, asked if we wanted any more custard for our, you know, for our pudding. And I passed my mat up instead of the plate. And uh, she poured the custard over the mat. And I thought, great, my first joke. It's a success, <laughs> you know. And everybody sort of turned on me and said, what did you want to do that for, you stupid boy? And I got sent to bed, you know. <laughs> they tried to iron it out of me. What, as part of starting Monty Python, did you each have to f- try out your own falsetto? <laughs> No, no, just sort of, it just sort of came naturally. We just sort of, fi- you know, you've, if you've got it said, you know you've got I mean, you've probably got a wonderful falsetto if you just tried. I really don't know, Terry. <laughs> well, there you are, you see. <laughs> you never know until you try. You know, and we could, we could you walked away. There's nothing but spam now. We, we could probably get the whole audience talking falsetto. <laughs> let's, let's hear everyone in falsetto. What are you going to say? Spam, spam, spam. Spam. <laughs> Oh, baked beans, that's a good one. Baked beans are off. I, I think that's probably the most impersonated voice outside of Julia Child in this country. <laughs> so uh, when, you, when you write your children's books, do you go back to these, these childhood memories of, of uh, playing jokes at the dinner table? Well, no, I think the children's books, I mean, I started writing the kids' books um, when my daughter Sally was five. And I thought, oh, great, I can read uh, um, ha- uh, fairy tales now. So I, I started reading Grimm's to her, the uh, Brothers Grimm. And I, I was reading Snow White, I think it was, from the original um, German, I mean, not in German, <laughs> it was a translation. <laughs> uh, my daughter at five didn't speak too German too well, actually. But anyway, I was, I was reading her, the Snow White, and at the end of the original Snow White, the wicked stepmother is punished by being made to put on these red-hot iron slippers and dance until she falls down dead. And I was reading this, I think... My little five-year-old daughter's going to go to sleep thinking, oh, I'm so glad they tortured that old woman to death. <laughs> I don't know, I can't do this. So I thought I'd have a go and write some for myself. So I, I, I wrote a book called Fairy Tales for Sally, and that's how it started, really. 
And you've got ones out called The Curse of the Vampire Socks and Other Doggerel. Yes, I'm, I, I'm not officially plugging that one. It's just I have to have it. Well, but it's, it's, it's great doggerel. I mean, there is, there's one in here called Drusilla Quill. Oh, yeah. Which... My favorite one's Horace, actually. Do you want to show me your Horace? Do you want to read it? Yeah, Horace? This is Horace, yes. This is a, a, a little poem called Horace. I don't know why I'm reading this. It's just, it just seems, ah, it seems apposite somehow. This is a, a poem from the, oh, the Curse of the Vampire's Socks. Horace. Much to his mum and dad's dismay, Horace ate himself one day. He didn't stop to say his grace. He just sat down and ate his face. Hey, we can't have this, his dad declared. If that lad's ate, he should be shared. But even as he spoke, they saw Horace eating more and more. First his legs and then his thighs, his arms, his nose, his hair, his eyes. Oh, stop him, someone, Mother cried. Those eyeballs would be better fried. <laughs> but all too late, and now the silly had even started on his willy. Oh, 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 oh foolish child, the father mourns. You could have deep fried that with prawns. <laughs> Some parsley and some tartar sauce, but H was on his second course. His liver and his lights and lung, his ears, his neck, his chin, his tongue. <gasps> to think I raised him from the cot, and now he's going to scoff the lot. His mother <laughs> cried, what shall we do? What's left won't even make a stew. And as she wept, her son was seen to eat his head, his heart, his spleen. And there he lay, a boy no more, just a stomach on the floor. <laughs> but nonetheless, since it was his, they ate it. That's what haggis is. <laughs> so, so this is okay to read to your five-year-old. <laughs> it's not in German, anyways. <laughs> well, your new book, Lady Cottington's Pressed Fairy Book is what, oh, the my, third in the my series? My publisher will be so pleased you got onto that. <laughs> well, it's, it's the third in the series. There was the, uh, the pressed duck and the pressed pants before now. It's the pressed fairy. <laughs> and the pressed tongue. You forgot about the pressed tongue. Yes. Well, no, this is a book. I haven't written this book, I have to tell you. Um, this is, book was discovered um, in the attic of Lady Cottington's house um, after she died and therefore cannot make any public appearances. Um, and uh, the book, it turns out, is a quite a remarkable find. It, it appears that Lady Cottington, as a small child, discovered, she was about seven, and she was born in about, uh, well, about, around about 1895, she was about seven. She discovered if she sat at the bottom of her garden with her flower-pressing book on her knee, the fairies would come flying round, and being rather sort of inquisitive little things, inevitably one fairy would come and land on the book. And she found that it, when it did, she went... <laughs> and caught the fairy in the book. And then she said, she kept, you have to keep pressing until either the squealing stops or, or there's a slight squashing sensation. And, and there you are, you're left with an impression of the fairy on the book. With, with sort of this greenish smudge on each page. Well, it, it was a bit messy, yes. It's a little bit... <laughs> it's, and now that, that's a, what you're showing there is a goblin, actually. She got one or two goblins by, by mistake. The, the fairies smelt rather pleasant, but the, the goblins were a bit, uh, a bit messy and a bit smelly, actually. But uh, she, anyway, she kept, uh, she kept <laughs> pressing these fairies from about, uh, until she was about 17, I suppose. She did begin having doubts about it uh, when she was about 12, whether the morality of it, whether it was a good thing to actually catch these little creatures. But uh, I think it was all right. I think, uh, 
I think they were just um, leaving psychic impressions eventually. Wasn't there actually a photograph of Lady Coddington with fairies surrounding her? Well, actually, that, that famous photograph that was authenticated by Conan Doyle was actually of the Codrington sisters. That was a, 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 a little known, but a, a, an associated thing. And in fact, what happened was the two sisters had claimed these were, these were genuine photographs authenticated by Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, until, I think, one of them died, and just before the last one died, the last sister died, she, about a week before her death, she admitted that they were fakes, which, of course, was very alarming for everybody who'd believed in them. So that's why it was so wonderful to actually come across this book, the uh, Lady Cottington's book, um, because for all of us, I, I mean, I don't know, Sage, whether you've had, had any doubts about fairies and the existence of fairies. Not for a moment. No. Well, uh, you're lucky. I mean, I have to say, I sometimes have wondered whether they exist. And, and so when I, this book was given to me, and I suddenly opened it and up, and there they were, these pressed fairies like flowers in the book. I, I realized this was a historic moment in the history of humanity, I think. I realized that uh, one of your routines was about chocolate-covered crunchy frogs. Because <laughs> <laughs> of the bones that made this nice crunching sound. Well, there, right. there was an acoustic sort of appeal here for this book. Uh, yes, I think so. I think, uh, obviously, when, I mean, I don't know whether fairies have got uh, bones, that, but there's certainly... We, we do have this very rare bit of film, which unfortunately this is radio, so I can't show you, of uh, Lady Cottington um, describing how she caught the fairies in her youth and uh, what happened. You, you had a section of this book kind of uh, closed off. There was a brown wrapper around That's it, right. kind of etoized or something. I don't it, know. And it, it, was, was it was Lady Cottington herself who did that. The, what happened was the, the fairies started to get very rude. Um, they started showing their bottoms to Lady Cottington. <laughs> Um, I think what happened was they discovered that if they showed their bottoms to her, she was very shocked. I mean, very you know, well-brought-up Victorian girl. She got rather shocked, and fairies are rather naughty little creatures, and so they took a great delight in shocking her. And then what seems to have happened, uh, when you read Lady Cottington's diary itself, it seems that she associates her own sexuality, and in fact other people's sexuality, with the behavior of the fairies. And that, and that somehow she, the only explanation she can find for these seemingly irrational things that gentlemen start trying to do to her, and uh, that you know, she feels in herself, she blames the fairies all the time, increasingly as she, as she gets older. And the fairies, of course, just get ruder as that goes on. <laughs> now, was it, this was one that you read to your five-year-old daughter, too, when you well, found no, it? This, this is not a children's book in any, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, this is a record of the uh, erotic development, of undevelopment of a, of a, a Victorian lady, I suppose. I, th I think she became very repressed, in fact. Well, could you bring a bit of the diary to life for us? Well, yes, um, there's an example here. What happened was she... Um, she fled England. She thought uh, there, was a pub uh, there was a photograph published of her uh, with a fairy, and, um, and she felt she was going to be ridiculed. She fled to Italy, and there it was in Italy. She found the Italian fairies being very, very rude to her indeed, um, <laughs> waggling all sorts of bits of their anatomy in front of her. But that she really didn't want to see. Um, and she eventually got back to, uh, to Framlingham, to her home in, in England, and thought, what a relief to be with good old English fairies. But unfortunately, the, the English fairies seem to have uh, developed a, a taste for the same thing. And this is, this is um, an entry um, for the 13th of October, 1909, uh, towards the end of the diary that she kept. Uh, she eventually decided that she would have to tell somebody about this secret di uh, diary and about this uh, secret vice, almost, she thought it was. She said, Today I spoke with a bishop. I had decided to do this a month ago, and this morning, when he called, I resolved to take the plunge. 
I cannot tell you how fearful I was to be speaking to my spiritual advisor. But I took courage from the fact that he was a, a learned man and a sympathetic friend, or so I thought. Your grace, I began. I feel I can confide in you as my oldest and trusted friend. Oh, my dear Lady Angelica, he replied. No one could have your best interests more closely bound to their heart. I shut my eyes and took a deep breath. This was the moment. I had this book, this book of press fairies, upon my lap, and it gave me confidence to feel its familiar edges and smell the slightly perfumed fragrance that exuded from its pages and that seemed to strengthen as my collection grew. It was time I spoke out, and for the first time since I'd spoken to that wretched cousin Nicholas, I would reveal to someone my long-held secret. In the sunbeams, I thought for a fleeting instant that I saw Moonhopper fondling her breasts close to his grace's ear. But as I looked again, I could see it was just dust in, in, in the air. Your grace, I began, since I was a small child, and so I told him of my first experiences with the fairies. I told him of Florizel, the nosy fairy, of the fairy call of the mischief makers. I told him about anti-mercy, the disappearance of my precious book of Pipskin, Tinkle, and Tuppence, of the way the fairies seemed to grow bolder and seemed to provoke me into, pre into pressing them. I then carefully broached the subject of the Italian fairies <laughs> and the shameful way in which they had behaved towards me at the Villa Carnale. At, and I was just leading to the distressing way in which they have tormented me ever since my return to England, when, to my utter surprise, I found his grace seizing my hand in his and whispering to me in an urgent voice, Oh, Lady Angelica, yes, they torment me too, those little fairies. <laughs> Upon my faith, <clears throat> I do believe the man had taken leave of his senses. I moved out of the sunlight in order to be able to see him properly. His eyes had an unnerving intensity about them, and he seemed to have dribbled on his purple front. At the same time, he slipped his arms around my waist. Oh, Lady Angelica, he was mumbling. It's only natural. Let yourself go. Follow the fairies. You're so beautiful. So damn beautiful. Yes, they torment me too. My book of press fairies fell to the floor. <clears throat> I tried to beat him off, but it's difficult to strike one's spiritual advisor, <laughs> particularly when he's the Bishop of Stoke and Charwell. There's only one way to defeat the fairies. He sounded more as if he was moaning than talking. Give in, do what they urge you to. And his grace suddenly stuck his tongue into my mouth. I do not know which surprised me the most, the, the fact of suddenly having someone else's tongue in my mouth, or the fact it was a tongue that hitherto I'd only glimpsed in the course of delivering sermons on the denial of the flesh. <laughs> You're great, I managed to say. <laughs> but he was, he was already fumbling with my corsage. Those fairies, they lead me a merry dance, I can tell you. Oh, your breasts are whiter than a five-pound note. <laughs> let, 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 let me show them to you, I cried. I can see them, I can see them. He seemed to be almost hysterical. I mean the fairies, I said, and I groped for my book on the floor. This, I had just got my fingers around it when there was a knock at the door, and the bishop leapt to his feet as if he'd been electrocuted. I struggled to adjust my dress, but the bodice was torn and several buttons were missing. However, I managed to say, enter, and Fielding came in to inform his grace that his carriage was now ready. The bishop's face was as purple as his stock, but he managed to pull himself together and make his reply in a reasonably calm voice. As he reached the door, he turned and gave me a final bow, and then, in the flash of sunlight as he stood erect once more, I saw Moonhopper skip from his dog collar and slide down his cassock and into an aspidistra pot. There was something so comical about the bishop that I almost felt sorry for him. <laughs> Terry Jones reading from his rare find that he has brought out to the public, Lady Cuttington's 
compressed fairy book that, is this, let me see this, does it? Yeah, it does have that little, yeah. perfume exuding uh, course, from it. This is not the original uh, book, of course, um, and that's why it, it, there's a little notice on the front that says the, um, society, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Fairies guarantees that no fairies were killed or injured during the manufacturing of this book. <laughs> but of but course, I mean, that's talking about this book as a reproduction. I think the original book, there was a... There was considerable death. I think it was considerable carnage in the fairy world to begin with, yes. Do you have a line here that the cat sits in the... Aubrietia. Aubrietia. What is the Aubrietia? Aubrietia. It's a kind of uh, climbing plant, sort of blue climbing plant we have in our garden. You mean you don't have it around here? I don't know. Oh, have any of you heard of the Aubrietia? Yeah. Uh, a couple of It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a nice, it's a bright blue plant. Our, our cat always used to sit right in the middle of it. <laughs> Rather pretty. Do you have a large catalogue of plants in your house? Large, uh, now, well, yes, I don't know what most of them. My, my wife is a botanist, actually, so she, uh, she has lots and lots of plants all over the place, you know, in the bed and everywhere. It's terrible. Can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> What's that climbing rose doing? Get out, get rid of it. Oh. When you were, when you were uh, and Monty, you and all the associates of Monty mm -hmm. Python, John Cleese and uh, Eric Idle and so forth, were putting together the show, how did you divvy up the, uh, the male and female impersonation roles? Well, I don't know, to begin with, we all did them, I think. I mean, I, I think we all did our fair share, actually. It's just I, I tended to do these sort of I mean, rather tired middle-aged housewives, because it, <laughs> it just, it just looked, it seemed to look very convincing. I don't know why. I, 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 I must say, I, th I thought my, I think my favourite role, actually, in all the Python things was being the, uh, in, the, in, the in the song, Every Sperm is Sacred. Um, <laughs> I... I <laughs> I, uh, I had the honor to play the mother of 60 children. <laughs> and I, I felt, you know, actually, I was directing as well, and actually directing those 60 children, I didn't need to act this sort of tired old lady. <laughs> you directed also a life of Brian, yeah. and you, you played uh, a hilarious movie, with, which in any movie, of course, it has puns and fun with Latin grammar in it. <laughs> this is one of the few uh, comedy shows to actually do uh, yes, jokes about Latin grammar. I don't know. It's strange how it works, really. Mm. At Oxford, did you read Latin? No, no, no. I read Inglit, you know, sort of uh, English literature. Mm. But there you were in a, in, a, in, a, in a black cape, black cloak playing Brian's mother. Would you, uh, you, would, you would step back behind the camera? Would you keep the cloak back? Would you put it over your head? No, no, I mean, once you got it on, you know, it was all pinned into place. You couldn't really take it off. I mean, it was a nightmare, really, because I had all this padding on as well. I mean, I'm sort of slightly fatter now than I was then, but then I had these sort of false breasts and a great big sort of stomach, and it was all padded. And, of course, this was shooting in Tunisia in the summer. It was very, very hot. So, it was so would John Cleese take you seriously when you gave him a direction? <laughs> well, yes, I mean... Uh, I don't think anybody had Actually, I mean, it's strange. I mean, what, I, you know, what, what you wear when you're directing. I mean, there was, there was one point where I was playing the hermit in, in Life of Brian, in fact. And I started very early in the morning, sitting down this hole. And, uh, and then everybody came. We had a big crowd, and I was directing. We just spent, I spent the whole day directing. It was only just towards the end of the day. Michael Palin said to me, he said, you don't realize you're directing this film. You're not wearing any clothes at all. <laughs> It's one of the few times when you know, sort of uh, the entire cast was uh, clothed, but the director was nude. <laughs> your your first uh, writing for comedy was with Michael Palin, was it? Yeah, we started together, sort of writing uh, um, uh, things. Actually, the first joke I ever wrote for television was a joke for Ken Dodd, and it was a, a visual gag which I would love to do because this is radio. 
So it was meant to be the policeman's sports, you see. And so we, we, we were filming for Ken Dodd, who was an English comedian. And we had all these men dressed up as policemen with their police, you know, English police helmets and everything. And this was the policeman's walking race. So it started off with the policemen all lined up uh, for the walking race. And it went, on your marks, get set. <laughs> Striding back and forth, hands behind his back at the, at the Bobby's Walk. Describe that to your listeners. <laughs> I think more, more visual jokes for radio, I say. Well, the more the better. It makes the audience work a little harder, you know? You know, people who watch television have it too easy sometimes. You spell everything right out for them. So what was your and, and Michael Palin's first uh, project together? Um, well, I think we, just, we wrote for sort of band shows, like the Billy, you wouldn't have heard of these things, the Billy Cotton Band Show and uh, uh, the Kathy Kirby Show. Eventually, we did a show called um, Do Not Adjust, no, no, I keep saying it, it was Do Not Adjust Your Set. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it was a kid's show for uh, London, for Rediffusion, it was, yeah, television. And uh, most of them were wiped, I'm afraid, like most of the sort of television shows from the late 60s. Um, you mean erased? Erased, yeah. Been, uh, in those days, the television companies used to, used to wipe the tapes and uh, reuse them. Um, in fact, the only joke I can remember for that was one of Eric Idle's jokes. We did a, special, a Christmas special, and uh, Eric, as the introducer, suddenly in the middle of all this Christmas stuff, he suddenly held up a pair of knickers and said, well, I expect you're wondering what these have got to do with Christmas. He said, well, they're carols. <laughs> <laughs> Then Mike and I did a, a show called, um, called The Complete and Utter History of Britain, um, which was for London Weekend Television. It, it actually came out in 69, in the same year The Python came out, uh, but it was in black and white. And I, I suddenly realized that The Python was one of the first shows in color in, in, in English television. Um, but The Complete and Utter History, again, that's been wiped. But, but a friend of ours who was running a, a festival for, to mark the 25th anniversary of Python in, in, in Los Angeles last, uh, last month, um, rang up London Weekend Television and said, you must have got a, a copy of this show. And they said, no, 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 we've looked right through the comedy section. There's, it doesn't exist. We've, they've all been wiped. And eventually he said, uh, well, you must have it. Have you tried under history? And so they looked under history, and they found they had a copy of the show that had been misfiled under history. <laughs> what were the other categories? <laughs> oh, I don't I didn't ask. <laughs> well, I know you have to, to run on, but I want to thank you very much for, uh, for stopping by here on West Coast yes. Live. I'm, I'm, can I just say that I'm doing a book signing? I have to oh, I've said it several times. Oh, yeah, well, down at Tower Books, down in San Mateo. That, that's right, at 12.30 in about, ooh, about an hour's time. Yeah. Yeah, do you think you'll get there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, great. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like to have to... Yes. Oh, any, uh, any television projects for you at the moment? Yeah, I've got a, a, a series um, on the Crusades I've just made for BBC television. It's four, <laughs> four one-hour films. I mean, I have to tell you, these are, these are straight histories about the Crusades. Do you have difficulty pitching a straight story to a, to a film producer? Well, actually, he, he pitched it to me. The thing... The thing <laughs> The thing was, I, I read a book on Chaucer about 14 years ago, and so I got this sort of slightly academic sort of uh, side that goes. And so anybody tries to, is doing, trying to do a, a history series on television seems to ask me if I'd, I'd like to front it for them. But, um, so this is a, a history of the Crusades, but it's got nothing to do with Monty Python. Having said that, though, <laughs> I, I have to say, as we did the shows, we discovered that some of the, his, uh, the historians of the Crusades have obviously plagiarized Monty Python, totally. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I mean, there's one example. We in the Python TV shows, we did a uh, the only Suicide Squad in the in the British Army. It, it was called the the Makamikaze Highlanders. It was a uh, it was a Scottish regiment, and they trained the Suicide Squad trained by jumping off Edinburgh Castle to their deaths. So, so. As, uh, as the training went on, the numbers diminished rather rapidly. Um, and we had this scene where the, the, the leader of the, of the Kamikaze Highlanders uh, demonstrates the, uh, the, how well-trained his men are by getting them to jump off the castle wall. Well, now, we were in northern Syria in a, in a castle called Maziaf in, in the north. And uh, it turns out that 800 years ago, the same thing happened when the Crusaders were there. Um, it was Henry of Champagne, who I think was uh, the stepson of uh, Richard Lionheart, was visiting the, uh, the headquarters of the Assassin sect. And they were a suicide squad, um, a, a Shiite, that's uh, one of the factions of Islam. And they were a suicide squad. And the leader wanted to show Henry of Champagne how well-trained his men were. So he started getting them to jump off the castle walls <laughs> to their deaths. And two men had jumped off when Henry of Champagne said, that's quite enough, thank you. I've, uh, I'm very impressed. They're very well-trained. <laughs> Well, it was the same joke, you know. Absolute, total plagiarism. <laughs> you made the, the life of, of Brian. Would you be willing to make a similar movie on the life of someone contemporary of Mohammed? I think we'd think very, very carefully about that. <laughs> well, good sage words, right. Thank you. Terry Jones. My pleasure. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Thanks, sir. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.